Have you ever had sleep paralysis? If you haven't, this is a state where during waking up or falling asleep, one is completely conscious but in a complete state of full body paralysis. I have had this experience and it is nothing short of terrifying. That is the closest, I think, that a human, a healthy human, can come to what is experienced by patients suffering from what is known as locked-in syndrome. That is, a state of being conscious but unable to move one's body, which includes, of course, one's vocal apparatus. What would you do if you couldn't speak, write, or otherwise communicate in any way using your traditional communication pathways? Over the millennia, we have tried to understand the seat of consciousness. And as far as evidence stands, we are, for all intents and purposes, localized in the soft, approximately 1.4 kilogram mass that we carry around between our ears. I'm of course talking about our brain. With our vocal tracts, eyes, hands and our motor output system in general, we are able to reach out into the world, to communicate. The study of brain-computer interfaces asks, can we cut out the middleman and go straight to the brain? How can we map the activity in all those neurons to actions and perceptions? How can we understand the different states of brain activity when we are sleeping, dreaming, imagining or problem solving? To find out, in this episode I sit down with Dr. Mariam Alimadani, whose research spans robotics, human-computer interaction, brain-computer interfaces and cognitive science. I hope this serves as a small taste of what the field has to offer, so if you've ever been interested in how we can interact directly with our brain, this may be a good place to start. Thanks for tuning in, hope you learned something, and until next time, please enjoy. I tried to make this happen for, 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 for many, many months and weeks, and uh, finally you're here. Let finally we are here. Let me pull up. Yeah. Uh, so I so what I usually do for like my questions, like I have some questions, mm-hmm. just 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 in, just in case we have nothing to talk about, which is very unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, I have some questions which are generated with the help of ChatGPT. Oh, okay. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, what I did was I created a custom GPT mm. uh, that is tailored with just for as a basically it is my podcast producing assistant. Wow. Right. So like I tell it. Good the, use of technology. Yeah, right. So I so I basically said so I gave it like here are the podcasters that podcasters that I admire and the work that they do. Here are the questions that they ask. Mm-hmm. Here's how they ask. So like help me improve the way I ask questions and mm-hmm. like the, the questions I ask about. It is super helpful. Like GPT is helpful if you know how to you like where to use, use it, it and yeah. what to use it. Like mm. generally, it's not useful. Anyway, it's all about the prompting part. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of stuff to talk about. Yes. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is how did you end up here? Oh. Because okay. you were in Japan for a while. Yes, right? I was in Japan for yeah. thirteen years and a half. Yeah. And do you study there or do you just yes i did my whole education there actually i went there when i was 17 years old oh damn okay i, I didn't had know that. just finished high school okay and i got this scholarship from the japanese government to study in a japanese university um that came with one year of japanese language okay. um study program and then four years of a bachelor program in one of the universities so there. What, what was your uh like primary language like where um, are you from originally uh from iran and ah, I speak okay, Farsi. Okay. Okay, That's okay, my okay. native language. Okay. 
And uh, when I was in Japan, I had to learn Japanese to be able to study in their university because the, pr the primary language there is Japanese for the study programs. And then after that, it happened so that I also continued to a master's program and a PhD program. And I also all in Japan. All oh. in Japan. Oh, yeah, I also okay. uh, did a postdoc fellowship at Tokyo University for two years. And that was uh, when I realized that I have been in Japan for quite a long time. Yeah. I had roots there and I was um, a little bit nervous that it becomes just too powerful for me to leave ever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still was not ready to settle. I wanted to expose myself to academic environments outside of Japan because every country, every place, geographical place has different cultures and that culture is also reflected in the academic environment. So I started looking out and then I got this faculty position in the Netherlands. Oh, okay. So what have you like what are some big differences between like here and Japan? A lot. Like just in the, let's just talk like like just academia. Like what's the Yes, what's yes. The way? So uh, it's huge. I had a, a prime uh, culture shock when I arrived. Um, so as everybody probably knows, Japanese um, work environment, not academia, any working environment is very uh, hierarchical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a pyramid of power, people on top, and then and at every level there are like supervisors, people below you, people above you, and you have to have a certain way of interacting with them. Um, and that particularly is the case for teachers and students. Oh yeah, no, I'm from Sri Lanka, so like... Yeah. Because <laughs> I forgot my notebook. Usually I have like thing to take little notes on. Yes, nice. go okay. ahead. All right, I'm from Sri Lanka, which is very similar in that yes. sense. So yeah. like, that's part of the reason I, I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't stay there because like, I'm I'm not, like, I, 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 it's hard for me. Like I have a very, mm -hmm. like I'm very, no, it doesn't work. So anyway, so mm -hmm. yeah, keep going. Yeah, and, and then when I arrived here, I already knew, well, I had read up already that um, the culture is different in, in the way that it's more flat and uh, there is no power structure, blah, blah. But I was extremely shocked at how, um, you know, forward the students were yeah. <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> I was like, as a student, I, as a student, I would never say that or yeah. do that. And uh, that was a shock at the beginning. Now, um, imagine like my position had changed. So for so long, I was a PhD, I was a master's student and then a postdoc fellowship, which still you've got a boss above you. And then I come here, I'm a faculty member and I expect that like, you know, now yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. returning the favor. Yeah, yeah. No, like, um, <laughs> yeah, it was also important. Like it was important. I, I think I understand because like for me, it was more important to discuss at the, like to have a conversation at the level of ideas. Like mm. it doesn't really matter where, who the idea is coming from like I want to talk about and discuss and I care about the ideas I don't care that you've been here for 30 years like yeah it doesn't matter to me no know? but it was not that it was more about the way the language was used ah, okay. and um, like things students would ask of you as if like you know they are the client and yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they yeah, yeah. deserve the service uh, which was not the case in the environment that I was raised in and yeah. I was um, trained in. Yeah. Um, so that was a shock at the beginning, but I very quickly adjusted. So I think that's that's something um, that's that's a strength of me that I adjust quickly. So do you prefer this over to the previous? Now the after six years, yes, yeah, yeah. I have very good students, and I really admire the way that they are so creative and open and. Uh, 
also progressive in the way that they yeah. um, uh, they work in their study program. Um, some of them are just here to just graduate and yeah. get a, a degree. Yeah. That's fine. I yeah. will adjust my expectation to your expectation as a as an educator. Yeah. But those who are really, you know, they want to take the they want to go the extra mile. I'm there to yeah. help them. That's and amazing. That's, that, that's something I really appreciate yeah. uh, from you and like from the, even the other f- the, the, the faculty here has been all because I'm very I can be very annoying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't see it that way. No, because you know? like because like, cause, um, I like uh, you know I've had like you know my, do you know you know Andre Andre who Alexandru like he was he, he was it doesn't matter anyway a friend okay. of mine. And uh, like you know, like oh yeah, 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 I know him. Tall guy. Yes, yeah. I know him. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, he so, he came over a couple of times for meetings with me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we always had a good laugh because like he would say stuff that I would not yeah, immediately yeah, get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's <laughs> yeah, hilarious. He's very unique. Yeah. yeah, and like you know, we like we got complaints from other students that like we keep turning lectures into personal conversations with the, with the with the yeah. instructors because like uh, because. You know, it's it's more it's fun, but anyway. So this is very interesting. Uh, so you came to the Netherlands, right? Yes, I but came to the Netherlands. What were you studying? So your bachelor's. What did you study? What was what was your what was your, what was your <coughs> So I come from study? an engineering background. Oh, okay. My uh, bachelor's and okay, just master's speak, degree. Keep move this thing so it's like in front of your face. Yes. Otherwise, okay. like, yeah, because it sure. picks up. So turn it a bit. Turn the thing. Oh, on. There you go. oh, okay. it's that sensitive. It picks oh, up okay. things directly in front of it. Okay, yeah. okay, nice. Yeah, let's adjust this. Yeah, yeah good, good that you that's noticed. Good. Yeah, good. Um, so my bachelor and master's program were um, so for my bachelor's I did electrical and electrical engineering. Yeah. Oh, so did, so did I. Yeah. My first and was um, first. and then um, my master's program was system innovation. Um, so it was like a, f- a specific uh, program within the school of engineering. And uh, normally, you know, the Japanese system is slightly different than here. Um, you choose your study program based on um, the lab you want to uh, do your master's thesis in. So there, oh, really? there okay. are, yeah. So there are a couple of programs that you can enroll in, and there are a couple of faculty members that are like, you know, heading um, certain labs there. And some of them are teaching in some programs and not the others. And I chose this program particularly because I wanted to work in Ishiguro Lab. Okay, and that's, uh, that's that's a pretty interesting approach. I yeah. yeah. So um, I I went there and I did my studies for two years. But what I was looking forward to was the second year. There you do your thesis over a course of a year. Right. Uh, it's not like half uh, a year, one semester. Yeah. So the first year is like courses, you get the credits. And then the second year is like fully research oriented. And that's when I um, started working with robots, oh, um, nice. getting into the intelligent robotics lab, which is the lab of Hiroshi Shikuro. What is the robotics e- ecosystem like in Japan? Like, com- com- like it's, it, it seems, I mean, I mean, I, I only know about it from like a very uh, yeah. you know, sci-fi fan fiction mm-hmm. way, but it seems to be like it's a very big part yeah, of the it's Yeah, it's a very education. huge community yeah. and um, they value it a lot. I think there's a still a lot of funding that comes to such topics. Yeah. Um, I mean, like if you look at NWO research agenda, like robotics is not the biggest deal there. Um, uh, but there in Japan is still, you know, the engineering sciences are uh, usually paid attention to. Um, so yeah, and, and I, I think uh, particularly in the domain of human-robot interaction, I think Japan was where the whole domain actually grew right. from. Um, so they are still very active. The big 
figures are still uh, there working, Japanese and non-Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and um, this guy, uh, Hiroshi Shiguro, who um, later uh, became my PhD supervisor, uh, was actually quite a famous person at the time because he had just made this robot that was a copy of himself. And what? that made a lot of headlines. Okay. Um, oh, when I think I've seen this. Yes. I've yeah. This, I, I think this. there's okay. no one that hasn't seen yeah. this because it has gone viral in almost all uh, social media platforms. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so his idea of the next generation of robots was like these Android robots that are going to become um, like so, sort of a surrogate right. of of real humans. Um, and, and the idea was not that they are going to replace us. For him, this was a test bed of like, what are some of the human cognitive psychological functions that we can test through these robots? Uh, one of the things that um, he was uh, particularly like putting forward as a terminology was uh, Sonzaikan, which is like the sense of presence. Oh, what nice. is it that like, I feel that you're present here. Yeah. Right, so that come the, the Japanese have a term for it. That's and that's cool. How, yeah. how, 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 what's it called? It's sonzaikan. S O N. Yeah. Z A N. Z A N. Sonzai. Uh, sorry, A I. K A N. K A N. Nice. Sonzaikan. Okay. Uh, means the feeling of presence of yeah. someone's presence. Yeah. And the idea was that how can we transfer this feeling of tra uh, presence from humans to androids? Oh, that so like, look like would them? that apply to like spirits? Like, would people like would people be Not like Not necessarily. Like, like so ghosts that, and so that like we want uh, robots, human-like robots, to become as realistic. Oh, okay as as uh, like so we want it to become as realistic as a real human so that when you're talking to the robot even though you know that this is a robot you still feel that there is a person in it right that was the idea okay so that is the feeling of presence how is it that like i consider you as a present like object here yeah. existing in this space yeah or like more than just existing in the space but like i mean okay that's that's interesting because mm. As your a lot of your research has shown, it's very easy to trick the brain into thinking that there's a person here. Yes. Right? Okay, yes. Cool. Nice. So that was the idea. So first, as me as a partner that is talking to this robot, uh, lots of the research that he did was that how do I perceive this robot when it's, for example, teleoperated or it moves autonomously? So part of the research was there. The other uh, cognitive aspect that he was very much interested in to research about was the feeling of embodiment. How is it that I do have a sense of embodiment over my body here? I know that I am here and I can interact with the environment around me through my body. Can we pass that to a robot? Right. Um, so again, this is um, the part where the android becomes a surrogate of you. Um, and and um, for you to be able to teleoperate this better, you need to be able to actually feel that extension of body. Right. Um, and this is um, the classic example of this that had already been introduced and published in 2002 was rubber hand illusion. Yeah. Uh, where you that's, have this dummy hand. I find that, like, it, you know, people, people see that and think, oh, that's cool. But, like, I find that really weird. Like, Have you tried it? Like, I have. Like, weird, yeah. weird in the sense of, like, like, 
Like the first thing that that occurred to me, like not not, not the first thing, like as I started the BS, BC, BCI course this semester, mm-hmm. which I was looking forward to having you teach. <laughs> but you know, Fred, I, Fred will do. Yes, <laughs> Fred will do. Yeah. Uh, there is one paper in the material there. I just read it. Yes, yeah, yes, 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 the, yes. which is about the yeah. feeling of body yeah, ownership yeah, and yeah. how you can transfer it with BCI control. Yeah, like yeah. what occurred to me is like, the brain seems weirdly scalable. Yes. Right. Like it's almost like it was designed. to be scalable beyond mm-hmm. the constraints of the physical body that we have which is some really neat forward thinking forward thinking engineering there are many illusions that you can go and study yeah. about where they are just like based on perceptual mistakes right. that happen in the brain right so the visual illusions yes. most of them are perceptual mistakes yeah. and this form of like embodiment illusion that um, we were looking into is more of the cognitive um, uh, you know the, the neural cognitive um interaction of the prediction system in the brain and the sensory feedback that you receive oh, actually, from the environment maybe just like the, just uh, just 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 shortly describe the rubber, rubber hand illusion for people who have I I put all this stuff in the link in, in yeah. the description do you want like, me to explain yeah, rubber yeah, hand illusion so yeah. rubber hand illusion is a feeling um that you might get uh when you see a a plastic body like a rubber hand in front of you um and that body gets stroked or stimulated in the same way in the same time so simultaneously as your body so let's imagine that you have your own hand hidden somewhere and um the 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 plastic hand is placed in front of you in the same place that your real hand could be and then both of them get touched at the same time for a couple of minutes after a while you start feeling that this hand that i'm seeing and the feeling that i'm feeling on the on the on my own hand are sort of a match yeah. and therefore this hand is part of me that's that's ridiculous that's that's a trick <laughs> your body your your brain is, starts becoming tricked about yeah. this yeah. and um so th- th- that's why we call it illusion because it's a trick that happens in the brain and we think that even the feeling we have for our own body yeah. comes from this integration of different sensory input from the environment so every time i move my body i actually feel my body move yeah, that's yeah. the the proprioception interesting so like i actually uh, i saw the study uh, where based like so they sh- sort of like it showed how like very young like babies mm-hmm. learn learn the sense of agency that they have in the world mm-hmm. so they have this you know how babies have the spinning things like the leg on the bed and like the thing spinning around yeah uh and then uh, they what they do is they attach a string the baby's foot and then tied to the thing the the spinning thing and the, uh, so at first the baby's laying there there's no string and it's just like randomly moving and he's like okay it's fine and then they tied to the foot and then the baby learns that the, the he has a uh, agency over this thing and it, that makes like yeah, huge like he learns that you can course. do these things yeah and and that's how i think over time we have learned to navigate the world with our body so yeah, yeah. i think we, we all know when we were babies or children toddlers um everything we wanted to do went wrong yeah, right yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. like we were not able to coordinate our movements but yeah. it's through a lifetime interaction with the environment through our body that now we think we can control our body do you think it makes sense to think of like your body as the first environment that you learn to navigate like your own body like so that seems like what's happening right when you when you're like a when you mm. when you're an infant it seems like you have you really have no idea how to control yeah. this thing yeah. and then over time you get better and better at learning how to control mm-hmm. this thing then you move on to being okay actually i can then 
like once you master your own internal environment then you can mm. start to sort of there are actually two schools in the neuroscience community oh, this is good okay yeah. let's see this um um some researchers believe that yes it's acquired well, so okay. when you come in so to put it simple is that when you come into the world you are like a blank slate yeah. and you learn and you start having this representations all encoded in yeah. the brain and there is the other school that thinks no some of them are evolutionary already there yeah. is a footprint yeah. of that yeah, uh, yeah i think and the neural system probably, it's, it's probably, the answer like most things are probably somewhere in the middle right probably yes i i think um it's it's easier to say this for language yeah. than for yeah, for yeah, example yeah. movement no, i mean like vision for example right <laughs> yes we, um, we know there's a i mean obviously like there's a there's a there's a a genetic like a mm. like a like a innate component to it but also if you don't you know we know from experiments that if you, for example if cat if you if you uh stop a cat from moving and put mm. his head which you can't do now in you know in experiments yeah. but like it goes blind because you need to have the motion to develop mm. the sense of vision so yes. someone mm. who has for example had that level of vision damage you can't just like give them vision in the future because it, it just doesn't work the brain yeah. doesn't just it, it was not developed exactly. from yeah. from the beginning and um i mean like recently i i i yeah. have read speaking to this thing i have read um a, a recent uh, paper about handedness yeah. and how for example we don't see it in other primates what right. we have yes. it with yeah. humans and that's kind of like a um, probably great. a hint yeah. that maybe some of the movement related mappings and representations are already there yeah. when you're born but then most of them you acquire through right. a lifetime how you use that you know that primary hand that dominant hand yeah. um, that's again through practice yeah. with the environment anyway co- coming back to the to the discussion we had um, so when I was there I got very much fascinated about this research on um, human robot interaction but not just social robots in general like human like robots and the feeling of um embodiment telepresence and all that and at the same time i had all always you know, like uh, fancied research about the brain like neuroscience and there was a moment of opportunity when i realized um that um this guy who i wanted to do my research uh, in his lab um is trying to open a project about brain computer interfaces oh nice okay and integrated with uh with the uh robotics research he was conducting and i was like i'm in I want to do it. <laughs> like right, right. I wanted it all. I wanted the robot, I wanted the human, and above all with the human, I wanted to dig into the to the uh, neurocognitive mechanisms of human robot interaction. And the project uh there was about um looking into this feeling of embodiment when you don't actually move your body to have that illusion of embodiment. When you control a body with your brain activity, So as if like I hold the intention of movement and I see this robot moving according to like the right. baby yeah, you yeah, you yeah, said exactly. like they move their feet and they see this yeah, moving yeah, that's yeah. agency yeah. so in this case let's imagine that your body is not moving you just have the idea and imagination that you want something to move and it responds accordingly uh whether we have that sense of embodiment and agency and no one had done it until then um it required me to establish this um this brain computer interface system that controlled the robot body so that we could hook up humans with sensors that collected brain activity from the surface of the scalp um they held imaginations of movement and those imaginations were then decoded by the BCI classifier to movement of the robot they would watch it from a pers- 
first person perspective and uh, so we sort of replicated the rubber hand illusion yeah, setup yeah. but this time used the brain computer interface system to control the and body and this is the paper I read this I is the paper so, that you're going to yeah, read in well, the yeah, yeah, or yeah. you have already read yeah, in the, B, in this, the uh, uh, BCR uh, course uh, yeah. and what uh, the outcome of that study showed was that yes, it's indeed possible that without integration of more sensory information than just visual feedback, which is congruent to your intentions of movement, you can still experience that illusion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Wait. This is good. Now, but yeah. now. Like, that's I'm, how. That's how plastic your brain exactly, is. <laughs> how uh, easy your brain can get is, tricked. That is. Um, that is like that is really weird. Okay. So. Like, uh, so that was your first foray into BCI research, was it? That was my first entry okay. into the BCI world. Okay, nice, yes. nice, nice. And recently, you were you've been looking into creativity. Yes, that right? I do too. How, yeah. how does that fit in? Okay, so uh, yeah, so I have come a long way yeah, 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 <laughs> from yeah, yeah. that moment. So yeah. I started with BCIs with robots, and yeah. it was mostly robot control. It's a specific paradigm in brain-computer interfacing called motor imagery. So you imagine movement, and then you control the robot. But then there are also other BCI paradigms where you can passively monitor a human brain activity. So then in my postdoc, I actually shifted toward more passive monitoring of brain activity to adapt agent behaviors to, um, to the human uh, during that interaction they were having. Um, so for example, uh, one of the projects I did was um, focus on therapeutic interventions moderated by robots. And the robot was reading um, these features in the brain that were indicative of how restful uh, or attentive you are to the intervention. So that's like one way that we went with it. The recent project that you're bringing up, Creativity, tries to actually look into neurocorrelates of creative moments, like the insight moments, yeah. and help people um, to uh, have a more personalized experience with creativity support tools. Right. So there are some environments that are already being made in the um, human-computer interaction field that are, um, you know, the, the goal of them is to help people to uh, focus on some creative tasks, such as divergent thinking. This is the task where you have to create ideas, generate ideas, as many as ideas as you can for a particular problem. Um, and then there are the moments that you're stuck right we want to know when are those moments that you are stuck when the system can actually provide a, a, a new see. cue a new clue to you so bci is 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 a subset of a broader human computer interaction field or um well bcis are are systems uh that on their own are at the intersection of a couple of domains so human computer interaction itself is very interdisciplinary BCIs also have neuroscience yeah, and yeah. the neuroengineering part added yeah. to it. Uh, you can consider that um, part of the the big part of the BCI research is also brain-computer interaction, but it's not all because there is also the engineering part where you have to actually do all that uh, machine learning and um, AI modeling of the brain activity. So how so like what are the ways you can so is the basically the goal to interact with the brain by bypassing our other senses like is like is that the that strategy? is that is one paradigm of okay. bci so as i said one paradigm is that like i give you control over your brain activity and 
you're going to learn about this in your course. Yeah. Uh, there are three paradigms, active BCI, passive BCI, and reactive BCI. Um, so that's one of the taxonomies that students learn in the BCI course. With the active BCI, you are actively controlling your brain activity to change something in the environment. So that's, for example, when a paralyzed person, by holding intentions of movement, can, can, can ride their wheelchair. Something like that. A patient is right. given the mobility ability. So you have to again. decode the intention from the brain. Exactly. You have to decode those active modulations of the brain activity that were held by the user themselves. The passive ones, on the other hand, try to monitor your brain activity passively. You are not doing a BCI task. For example, you are driving, right? That's a secondary task that you're actually a primary task you're doing. And then the system is trying to find the moments of, um, let's say, uh, fatigue and um, um, like when, when you are going into sleep, for example. Um, so that, those moments of vigilance are important for the system. And if you are no longer vigilant, the system, would, the system can give you an alarm. Nice. Like, um, so imagine you want to move your hand, mm -hmm. like, I'll, like I want to move your hand, right? So there's the entire pathway for that happening. So so there's the brain that that you do the, the command, then it's down the peripheral nervous system mm -hmm. to your muscles, to your motor output stuff, and then you move, it, move your hand, right? Mm -hmm. So is it, is it okay? Like, can we think of, think of like, so... Where are we measuring this usually? Exactly. Like okay. So that's a question that you are going to learn in the course, but I'm going to give the answer already. So uh, when you're moving your body, there are some activation patterns in the sensory motor area of your brain. This is the cortex that is here in the middle of the, in the central area of your brain. Um, and it's quite, compared to other um, uh, cortices, it's rather on the surface. And that's why we can actually yeah. collect it with yeah. non-invasive electrodes. Isn't it, I, I was thinking like, so I, I'm all, I'm all, uh, a lot of this stuff I'm thinking of from, from an engineering perspective, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I, like uh, I think of like, I look at the body and I think of the brain, I'm like, as an engineer, like, this is pretty cool. Like, yeah. if I had to design this yeah. and like, I was, th I was thinking, isn't it convenient that the cortex is actually on the surface? Because if it was, if we had to go all the way deep yeah. to get the signals that we need, Scaling this system will be much harder. Yes, and that's why, for example, emotion recognition systems are not yet that it's far. It's very hard. Yes. To go, to go into It's the very hard because the, uh, uh, the signals we collect non-invasively from the scalp um, are contaminated with noise that come from the cortices on top yeah, of it. So yeah. it's not so easy to yeah. um, to classify those uh, emotions. But going back to the um, to the question you had, how we decode this? So one very easy example of uh, um, motor imagery BCIs is the binary classification of right versus left movement, and that's based on the very basic principle that the coordination of body is cross lateral. Yeah. So your left hemisphere is controlling the right side of your body and your right hemisphere is controlling the left side of the body and if you look at your brain activity when you're moving every time you're moving a right body part there is a lot of activation in the uh, what we call mu frequency band yeah. uh, in the left hemisphere um, over the sensory motor cortex and every time you're moving one limb in the left side of your body you see the same activation patterns in the right hemisphere and interestingly 
right before you execute the movement, at the moment of holding the intention for that movement, those patterns start emerging. And that's why we can rely on motor imagination for uh, BCI uh, classification, because even without moving your real body, by holding the intention, so going that far of imagining the movement and already feeling that you want to move it, yet not moving it, the brain starts responding. So interesting. So and that's that's what we are collecting from the brain. So from a like interesting side note. So I practice I practice uh, jujitsu, mm -hmm. and you know I, I I was also I was looking into like how because you know the, it's not my it's not like I'm a professional jujitsu. I'm not doing it every day all day, right? Yeah. And I was thinking like, okay, how can I maximize the once a week lesson mm -hmm. that I have? And turns out, more imagery is actually really effective if you actually also practice. Like you can't just like sit at home and imagine uh, Im imagine mm. different moves and you get better. Yeah. But if you also practice those moves physically and then you have a deliberate uh, practice of like Absolutely. running through the movements in your brain, yeah. it actually improves your performance later on. Motor imagery is a technique that has been used by athletes for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So athletes, they of course work out their muscles, but yeah. you have to give rest to the muscles. Yeah. And during those rest, those break times, what is advised is that they continue motor imagery so that they rehearse the technique in their brain. Yeah. And that's effective. Yeah. Indeed, that's effective. And for example, part of the BCI research is for medical purposes to give mobility back to uh, disabled people, those who have lost mobility, uh, movement of their body. But there are also uh, teams that are working with athletes, how they can use neurofeedback and brain-computer interfaces for improvement of their um, uh, sports performance. Right. And how hard is it to figure out what's doing what in the brain in terms of like because there's a lot of activity i imagine right? yes so that's uh that's where we get into the ai modeling and yeah. the machine learning recently uh, uh deep learning approaches that we have to the brain activity as i said the more classes we have so if you start uh, thinking about classification of left hand movement versus right hand movement versus left foot movement and right foot movement now you have four classes and uh, very similar activation patterns in uh, both hemispheres that gets harder and somehow you need um, uh, better electrodes those can be probably better classified with implanted electrodes um, but um, for, 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 for what we have right now uh, we try to focus on two or three classes and extract features so this is the neuroscience part of the research first you have to understand what happens in the brain when people have a certain imagination you collect a lot of data and by the way uh, BCIs can be very individualistic because right. your brain activity is different than mine than person A than B mm. so um, traditionally BCIs are calibrated to each person so they have to first collect a lot of uh, data from me and then use my data to, to train this machine learning algorithm, tell them that, well, look, this person did motor imagination of left versus right hand movement 60, 80 times, and now get trained with this data. Next time I hold an imagination, the model can tell me whether it was a right or left movement. And, but you know, sometimes if I have a bad night's sleep, that can affect too. Can affect so you, that's okay. why we can't. <laughs> so that's the that's really the bottleneck of the BCI research because adaptation of models to people happen at three stages. 
And you're going to learn that in the VCI course yes. too. <laughs> and, yeah. Probably in later is, weeks than now. Which is basically me uh, like being like, you know what? Can I can I get the whole course in one exactly. and a half? Exactly. You're, you're doing that. <laughs> Good for this you. Extremely selfish. Like totally selfish behavior. So the first stage is to um, calibrate the system, yeah. right? The system at the beginning is, is blank, doesn't know you. And the system needs to learn what your brain activity looks like today. And then throughout the training, by the way, BCIs need training. So you cannot immediately start working with BCI. Yeah, it's because a skill you have to learn. It's a skill yeah. you learn. And so not only the system, the machine needs to learn your brain activity, you also need to learn the task to right, do it. Right. So it's, it's, it's a loop that the machine learns and you learn. So during the training, you try the a couple of trials and over time you might get better. Now we need to adapt the machine once more to you during that training. Um, so first, the machine was first adapted at the beginning, now during the training. And finally, every time you come back to use the BCI system, depending on your brain activity of the day, even your coffee intake, your your sleep last night, your emotions, you know, whether you are in control of your emotions, everything can change your brain activity and what we see. Yeah. Uh, you need to recalibrate the system. So the adjustment, the adaptation happens over three stages. The first stage, which is like calibration. The second is the real-time adaptation. And finally is the uh, adjustment of the system over over multiple sessions. So what are the, what, what kind of technologies, like uh, what are the ways we, get access to the brain in terms of getting data out of it. Yeah. So there are many ways of recording uh, yeah, brain activity. Yeah. Um, um, some of some of them are non-invasive. Some of them are invasive. When we say invasive, it means that it requires some form of surgery to implant the electrode either on top of your skull or on top of your cortex or inside the cortex. So depending on the level, how far the, the, the electrodes go inside your cortices, the level of invasiveness also is defined. Um, the most common ones that we do for research are the non-invasive ones because we cannot really um, uh, put people, put healthy people through surgery uh, just for the sake of uh, research. What we can do is, for example, focus on epileptic uh, patients who already need an implant in the brain and then use them for research. So that's one thing. Uh, with healthy people, we use, for example, electroencephalogram, uh, which is uh, electrodes that collect your brain signals from the surface of the scalp. They look so like a say, headset. When you say brain signals, we're talking about the electrical activity of the brain. Electrical activity, yes. Yeah. But there are also other ways to measure brain activation. For example, fMRI. Um, or um, uh, the, the, uh, Meg, uh, yes, it's a gigantic, it's a bulky system that you go inside and, yeah, and these you are sit very inside. Like mostly medical. Uh, uh, they look at the activation of the brain through oxygenation of yeah. the blood, yeah. so they don't collect electrical signals they have they they sort of like uh scan different layers of the yeah. brain and every time some part of the brain is active that part gets more oxygenated because yeah. the blood is flowing yeah. so they look at the oxygen level of the blood and that means that that part of the brain has been activated due to a stimuli that you were receiving so 
some of these uh, recording methods have better spatial um, resolution, meaning that you know where exactly in the brain what is happening. Yeah. Some of them have better temporal resolution. For, so, for example, electroencephalogram, uh, EEG in short, uh, collects electrical activity from the surface of the brain. So you don't know exactly what part of the brain, what region of the brain this is coming from, but it can give you uh, information about one thousandth of, of seconds. So very quickly, like, right? very quickly. Yeah. So, so it really it's depends what you want to. It's, it's very responsive. Yes. Okay. So it depends what you really want to um, classify from the right. brain, and based on that, define the recording method. Right. Nice. Okay. So we will learn that in the yeah, PCI yeah, course. Yeah. So <laughs> most of you, I don't so, repeat myself yeah, yeah, anymore. No. So, so what is like if you like? So your a lot of your research is based on EEG recording. Or like, do you have that on the screen? Um, it depends again on the domain application. Okay. Right. So, um, um, some application domains are um, about medical research, right? So you really want to give uh, people a certain mobility um, uh, that they have lost. Um, then you will go for both uh, spatial and temporal resolution, and that can be done through implanted electrodes. Or um, I have also seen MRI research, fMRI research, which is just like bound to the fMRI room. It's like very, in terms of mobility, like zero mobility. Yeah. The, the uh, subject has to be um, in, the, in the scanner. Uh, but at least, you know, they, they are looking at the technical possibilities yeah. with the MRI machine. Um, the rest of the applications, so the non-medical applications, they mostly go for the non-invasive one, yeah, which yeah. is EEG, FNIRS. FNIRS um, also looks at the um, oxygenation and of using the blood. Light, using light to see? Yes. You, okay. Yeah. You, the, uh, it uses the light. It sends a light to um, different veins in the brain. And then once they come back, it looks at how much uh, reflection it's nice. collecting. Okay. Um, and then... Um, yeah, there is uh, also the combination. So some uh, companies are now working on combination of different types of electrodes. So EEG looks at electrical activity. FNIRS also looks like a headset or cap that you wear. It uses the uh, oxygenation as an index for activity. And if you combine the two, then now you have both temporal resolution and spatial resolution without having to insert an electrode into the cortices. Right. So that's the hardware front where companies are trying the neurotech companies are trying to advance so like uh, uh, you know I don't know how how feasible or like reasonable this is but for me uh, what I what I find especially interesting about let's say taking control of more of the electrical activity of the brain in terms of like recording as well as mm. influencing is uh, for example with, with antidepressants right like mm. the best way we have to like so the reason why we use antidepressants or anything that get that that gets to the brain is because the blood-brain barrier is very careful with what lets that stuff in there. So we have to work really hard to get stuff past it to get into the brain, and then we have no high-resolution spatial control. So if you take antidepressant, antidepressant it goes all over your brain, and it's just there, and mm -hmm. we have no real control over what I would love. So instead of so instead of having drink, having to drink co coffee in the morning, mm -hmm. what I would love. Just grab in the morning and turn up the dopamine on my, yeah, on my on my smartwatch, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's like very specific parts of my brain, just like dial that up and then have it dialed all day. And then when I'm when I want to go to sleep, you just dial it back down. Yeah. Like how 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 unreasonable is that? Is that like direct electrical control over the well? Because 
the electrical activity we observe mm. is a response is a react a response to the biochemical activity so yeah, the new neuro- neuro- neurotransmitters yeah. get activated through yeah. the chemicals so right now what we do yeah. if we want to like control anything globally it's like we, yeah. we target the neurotransmitters to do, do it for, mm-hmm. for us you don't i mean we have like those magnetic like mm-hmm. simulation stuff which mm-hmm. seems to work i mean there's evidence that it works yep. but what about like direct electrical control over like i want to i'll put pulses here and make this but yeah. thing is we don't know what we don't that, know what it'll do that seems like more uh, of research at the intersection of pharmaceuticals and um, neuroscience and cognitive engineering um i honestly don't have much expertise to talk about that uh what i know is that there are um there is research trying to um stimulate some um, networks in the brain through electrical um, or magnetic uh, fields. Um, so there is one device called TMS yeah. um, that they hold on top of um, the head, of, especially it's uh, used in depression Yeah, transcranial, well. ma- transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yes, and um, what it does is that it creates a magnetic field um, to which the brain responds by creating electrical activation. And that is a way of uh, stimulating those networks that haven't been uh, stimulated in the past. Now, pharmaceuticals, what they do is they use drugs to do that. Yeah. Um, here, you are actually externally yeah. activating the um, the brain for that. And there has been suggestion that this can also go beyond just depression um, application. Um, some have argued that this can help with learning. Oh, interesting. So you can actually improve... Uh, and enhance some of the cognitive functions. With TMS? With TMS, it's still ongoing research, no concrete outcome yet, but there has been suggestion that if you can stimulate part of the brain to control emotions, so for emotion regulation, you can also stimulate it for memory. You can also stimulate it for attention deficit. Um, So um, there is research ongoing. I don't know if you will at least in your lifetime have <laughs> that opportunity to have a smartwatch yeah, that yeah, gives yeah, you yeah. control over your level of dopamine yeah. in a I, particular I so. area yeah. but at least for now the level of um advancement that we have is as far as this nice it's like um uh, there's uh, there was some study uh, that i saw a while back like for example if you listen to something while you're studying a, a tune or something and then you go to sleep and you play that same tune you can bias your brain towards mm. towards doing like improving the memory in that in that thing so like it's really interesting how how much we can like put our fingers in there and like do stuff and it responds. it is and and part of it is i mean if you look into for example meditation research yeah, you yeah, see yeah, that yeah. most of that is through control over yeah. your brain activity right yeah, yeah. so you try to uh, modulate your brain activity in a certain way and through that you see behavioral change and that's actually the basis of neurofeedback research that you can bring in some cognitive behavioral changes through neurofeedback um, just giving control right, to right, the right. person over their own brain activity so yeah that's that's that, that's cool like um uh, what is there anything that's like particular like so i'm curious about creativity what what have you like like any like what's like like i want to ask a couple of questions like one is mm-hmm. like what are you thinking about lately like in terms of like yeah. two things you're curious about what you think what you want to work on like what does some some stuff you wonder about mm-hmm. but generally like let's talk about creativity like 
what have you learned about creativity because i have because okay so from like i because there's a body of literature that says genuinely creativity is very difficult to to teach mm-hmm. or to like influence mm-hmm. it's just either is or isn't there which is seems kind of harsh and i don't know how true that is like what have you learned about creativity and like the processes and stuff i like? think um actually the recent literature that i have read suggests otherwise yeah, that I have it's no not <laughs> a, it's not an inherent ability that you either have or not mm. it's actually that you can something that you can develop um and it um the definition of creativity is actually the very hard part yeah like yeah, yeah, you first need to define yeah, what yeah, creativity yeah. is exactly. based on which you can then decide how to measure it yeah, how to evaluate yeah. it and then, then how to enhance it yeah. um the current state of the art defines it as a state where you can have uh, novel solutions to problems that do not have a solution that do not have one concrete solution and these novels so these new ideas are also useful and practical so you can just create as many uh, new ideas that are not practical but it has to be useful so these two qualities are really important for a creative solution to an open-ended problem right right? right. so that's the current um definition that we use and research shows that um well, the moments of creativity are actually a combination of um, uh, the, 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 the human um, integration of different information. Hmm. Uh, so it really depends on how much resources you have yes, to be able to come up with a new idea that is also useful and practical for that matter. So if I absolutely know nothing about the problem, it's very hard to expect me, no matter how creative inherently I am, to come up with a novel and useful solution for that problem. Um, So that's why we think that it's possible to train creativity and to support creativity by giving insights about the problem to the person who is supposed to become creative about that, to innovate for that for that problem um one of the ways that we're trying to do it in our research is through virtual reality environments where we situate the person in the in a in in an environment that is relevant to the problem and then we ask them to uh, generate ideas for a specific uh, problem that exists in that environment and then we expect that compared to a non-immersive environment people will have more resources and you know information to integrate for a new uh, practical uh, solution that's interesting like so you know th- there's also this um, aspect of having constraints that mm-hmm. sort of helps with, cre- with creativity right so in the sense so for example my i used ChatGPT uh, as a creative partner quite a bit because it's hard to go from nothing mm-hmm. to something i want to work on but it's easier to look at something and say no i don't want to do that for sure that sucks yeah. like and like it really like for example i use gpt to to generate like I, I will give it like constraints like here are the things here are things, here are things that i care about here are things i want to do give me some like mm-hmm. get the ball rolling and then once it get, gets going i usually don't use his ideas but like it's enough to get my yes to get that 
process going and then I find the connection oh this is cool you you that. get the building blocks yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. eventually build it yourself yeah so that's what I exactly meant with the information available the resources available to you to come up with a new solution that is also useful right so for example let's say we are talking about finding a solution to a sustainability problem right about like a, a I don't know a, a recycling problem in the city so it would be definitely more um you know, uh, insightful if I situate you in that particular area that has waste problems so that you start thinking, okay, now what can I do with this thing and this thing and this thing? So that visual information is of paramount um, importance. Nice. So like, like um, uh, also, what about like the, like the ability to abstract, to, to abstract, uh, mm-hmm. the ability to abstract away from the things that are not relevant to mm-hmm. be like, okay, I can actually do something. For example, if you, if you, if you give, give someone a brick and say, come up, generate as many ideas as you can for, as, for uses for this brick. Mm-hmm. Um, That's exactly what they do in, oh, okay. <laughs> in creativity <laughs> research. Okay. The brick example is one <laughs> okay. classic maybe I, one. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I read this over. Probably, uh, yeah. And like, like, you know, some people will be like, okay, like just look at the brick as a brick and be like, yeah, this is you can build, build stuff with it. You can put it. You mm-hmm. can it's, it's a weight, but then some people can abstract. Like, okay, well, this is a like a, a rectangular four dimensional object. Mm-hmm. I can use it to measure something. I can use mm-hmm. it to like as a scale. Like, all these like different different mm-hmm. different things, right? Um, different use cases. Different use cases. So like, uh, what are some like are there any, like factors that influence this ability to generate like uh, novel ideas, and you know. How do you measure it in the brain? Like, how do you how do you? Watch oh yeah, this? measurement in the brain. That's something that we were interested in terms of mechanisms, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, there is one way to measure creativity in a way that you define the um, the task. So this 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 classic task that yeah. we were just referring to come up with as many use uh, use cases as possible for a break um, is uh, an example to which you can num- you can um, quantify or evaluate performance by counting the number of ideas you come up with there are also other ways to measure it like out of those like 12 ideas you came up with how many of them are actually practical and useful you know then that would be the percentage of the um, creative uh, use cases. Now, for us, it was important to also know what sort of processes that uh, are ongoing in the brain when you come up with those or when you are at least engaged in right, that right, idea right. generation process. And it seems so, at least with a couple of experiments that we did, that it, um, it it lies in the gamma band activity, the way we measured it. So there so has wait, been... Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but like yeah. you, ma- you mentioned the frequency bands a couple of times, kind of like... Just yeah. generally, like what I what can do you quickly go through it. So, uh, the brain activity that we collect are a, a collection of certain waves, okay. right? So, and any signal that comes into waves can be either fast wave yeah. or slow wave. The frequency wave. Yeah. The yes, the frequency of yeah. the like the, the the oscillations. The oscillations of yeah. the uh, signal. Um, those that are slower, those oscillations that are slower, they um, um, they uh, fall into frequency range. Um, that are between four to well between actually point uh, five to um, twelve hertz. Right. Up to that point, we actually separate this frequency range into three bands. We call it theta, um, uh, delta, theta, and alpha band. And delta band is usually the uh, oscillation patterns you get when you were sleeping. Right. 
theta band is the oscillation patterns majorly when you're resting. So this is globally in the brain or just the cortex or? Some part show it more prominently. Okay, okay. Of course, I cannot like just say, well, this band yeah, is yeah, associated yeah. with this. Yeah. But generally yeah, speaking, yeah. um, the slower bands um, show up in the brain activity when you are when when the when that network when that area of the brain are is less activated in that particular task so um let's consider it this way that higher like faster uh, brain activity is associated with more cognitive processing and slower uh, brain activity is associated with less cognitive processing so if you engage yourself in some arithmetic practices mm -hmm. uh, then you start showing beta band activity which is like a higher interesting okay. um, a frequency band and then gamma band activity is actually uh, higher than beta it's between 45 hertz um, to 60, some actually defined it up to 100 hertz. Very fast oscillating um, uh, signal. And um, research says that it's associated with integration of information right, right. Um, and also um, um, attention to environment. So when you are um, when you're collecting information from the environment and you're integrating it into um, uh, integrating it to formulate new uh, responses so it's it's very high level very fast and um, we actually saw in the um, old literature when people were doing like very basic creative task that um, alpha band activity became the prominent um, frequency that shows response to, for example, the example of the break. So if you give a paper and pen to a subject and tell them, okay, now we'll start writing down all the ideas you have for this break, for the use cases of this break, the research that we read up, uh, read up um, said that mostly you see uh, alpha band activation patterns. We did our research with virtual reality and we didn't find alpha band activity as it was reported before. We actually saw it in the gamma band activity. And then we started thinking, why is that the case? And the explanation we came up with was that those creative, uh, those idea generation tasks that were used in those studies were more mental mentally rehearsing stuff so you are actually inward looking um uh, into your own um you're looking inward into your own um ideas you do not really integrate information from outside um you and right, right. and your paper that's it's it like what you're you know, focused yeah, yeah, on it's it it's what right? you know already and that's it basically whereas in the vr experiment that we did when we put people in a virtual reality environment we gave them a task um I can actually give you the example of the task. So, for example, they were put in the middle of a forest, in a virtual forest, and they were told to uh, to solve the problem. There are two cities at, at the two sides of the forest. They want to have a passage between um, the two cities to carry stuff. And then how can you do it so that you damage the forest as little as possible? So, and they had to come up with as many ideas as they could. And they could actually look around the forest and uh, get inputs from the forest for ideas. Um, in that scenario, we saw more gamma band activity. So now we found an explanation. So this is where the neural mechanism comes into uh, the picture. Here we could explain that the way that the brain is activated when you are generating ideas for a task that requires outward attention is different than when you are focused internally. 
Nice. And okay. um, so with this, we think it's also possible as soon as you find these markers in the brain to also make your creativity support tools smarter. So if I have like, if I have designed an interaction um, uh, setup uh, where people interact with a particular um, interface that is supposed to help them with idea generation tasks, then that setup could become more intelligent by identifying those moments of creativity where you're paying more attention to the information outside or when no, you are like focused in uh, like right. internally and you have lost perspective of what is outside there. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. So there's, there's, so there's, uh, there's definitely like hope there for like to, to, to improve and like learn more about how creativity works. Exactly. So. We are trying. We're trying to like, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a black box, yeah, the, yeah, the brain. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's hard to, you know, decode it all the time. It also depends on the sample you collected. So the right. sample we collected were students that are, you know, young yeah. and they are at the prime of their um, um, you know, cognitive abilities. So it might be different from a user group to another user group. Uh, it also depends on your level of familiarity with technology, you know, right. how how smoothly and comfortably can you use um, new technologies, these new creativity support tools. So there are a number of factors that could have affected our results. And we are certainly mindful of that. Uh, but yes, we are trying to move forward. Um, yes. All right. Well, I'm going to be, be, be more respectful of your time because i know you're a busy person but yeah thank you okay let's uh okay so let's talk about like long-term future right so first of all like what are you what are you interested in right now like what what kind of like what are like what are mm. some things you're thinking about you're curious about you, you, you yeah. you'd like to like what domains mm -hmm. are, so are you interested in um, you mean research-wise, research right? Wise, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so there are two research directions that I am super fascinated about and I'm trying to develop further. Uh, part of it uh, is embodiment uh, and BCI research. I didn't get the time to explain this further, but during my PhD work, I actually found out that not only we can uh, induce this illusion of embodiment through BCIs, but we can actually use it to help people learn the BCI task better. So it became an important factor for the feedback design in BCI training protocols. Right. And, and now I want to make a comeback to that topic uh, where I create uh, virtual reality games that give that sense of embodiment together with other game elements that help a person to achieve better BCI performance uh, during their training. So that's one thing. I'm really interested in the integration of virtual reality environments and BCI training. I actually recently talked to some of BCI researchers that work with uh, ALS patients and disabled patients. Uh, one thing is that they want to create um, home-based BCI systems that enable them um, to communicate with their family members. And we think one idea that we can pursue is to create these multi-user games that brings in a lot of fun right, right, while right. also training the patient. So that's one um, direction that I'm very much excited about. The other direction that I'm currently developing together with my colleagues is um, the, uh, the, the creativity or um, how to put it, like the, um, the, the problem... Um, the, the, the problem-based learning augmentation for children through creative uh, creativity-inducing robots. 
So I'm going to expand it. Yes, yes please. It's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, so we recently did a project where we equipped a robot, a social robot with large language models, ChatGPT. And this robot was capable of uh, conducting a brainstorming task with, uh, with users. Uh, the user was given a task and we wanted to know compared to a wizard of O's, which is like a person behind a robot, how would people evaluate this, um, this large language model operated robot? And we realized that because of the amount of information that this robot was capable of retrieving from ChatGPT, the conversation was much more preferred by, uh, by the users. Um, the ChatGPT driven robot was faster and uh, it was also more structured. Um, and then um, above all, uh, th we found that uh, people reported a, uh, a similar social intelligence for the robot as they would do for a Wizard of Oz operated robot. So it means that the, the very huge problem we had so far with the pre-scripted robots, that the robot at some point became boring and repetitive yeah. and people no longer felt that that yeah. sense of human, we yeah, talked yeah, about it, yeah, that this yeah. is really human that I'm talking to, was not there. We can overcome that with um, chat GPT and uh, new verbal co uh, communication abilities that we can endow the robot with. We want to take this a step further and create robots that become tutor for problem-based learning tasks for children. And problem-based learning tasks is exactly what we talked, like a creativity-stimulating task. It's a method in educational sciences where rather than the teacher just guiding the student, uh, like do this, do that, do that, um, they give them an open-ended problem and they have to find solutions for it. So it's a way of developing creativity, um, creativity skills in, in children. And we want the robot to become a partner in crime for children right. in this process, where children can actually brainstorm with a robot to get more insights. Um, and this is something I will be very much interested in, in pursuing because it brings it in all together, also part of the research is focused on um, processing or at least evaluation of engagement through variable sensors. So uh, nice. it's, it's a way of expanding what I have been doing, but also with new ideas. So like, and if, if there are some like, like off, off, off the top of your head, like limit, like current, like limitations that BCIs have need, need to overcome in terms of like technology, mm. in terms of decoding, in terms of uh, sensor sensors, like what are some like big things that need to have solved in the next coming years for us to be, you know, for it to be more useful? Yeah, different researchers might have different answers. For me, I think in terms of hardware, we have come a very uh, long way. And uh, currently we do have really good uh, uh, headsets on market for research and for commercial use as well. But there is room for improvement, obviously. I think one of the reasons that you don't see BCIs being worked out in the real world <laughs> right now is that nobody wears it and, and walk. Um, we don't have that yet. Whereas, for example, um, there is um, more um, confidence in the VR hardware right now that you can like have it anywhere in, in, in uh, mainstream um, uh, cases, uh, application cases. Uh, BCIs still need to improve hardware. In terms of software, we also need to um, work on real-time classification methods. Um, a major part of the research so far has been focused on machine learning uh, approaches where it requires 
some neuroscience research, you have to identify features first so that you train your classifier with those. Whereas these days, a lot of researchers have shifted focus toward deep learning. And they're like, okay, we might not understand what's happening, but maybe this deep learning model mo could, could get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for that, you need a lot of data yeah. for the model to be trained. So it's a solution, but not yet a solution because we also lack data and the community is coming together. So now we have conversations about sharing data. I collect data, you collect data, everybody collects data. Let's put it together yeah, and see wait, wait, hold on. if we can do something. But is that a problem? Like, because we just talked about earlier how everyone's brain activity is different and mm -hmm. it varies from t day of day, time of day, like whether you have caffeine, That's true. whether you have, whether you're yeah. sleepy. Like, how do you get a, can you still get a strong enough signal to train a... That's different? one of the approaches in the uh, in the BCI world. Again, another topic in your uh, BCI course where we call it BCI, user-independent BCIs. Okay. So most of the BCIs have been user-dependent and this means that before you can even use this system, you need to train the system with your brain signals. Now imagine, every time you came to your computer, you had to set it up again from the beginning. Yeah, give, you, give it <laughs> your biometrics, uh, like your fingerprint, yeah. your password, your username, you would hate that using would it, yes, right? Yeah. Now we want to have a situation where we do have a basic pre-trained model yeah. and then we bring down the calibration time down for every person. So that's what we call the user-independent BCI. And for that, you need to at least know that what is the general pattern that emerges for most people when they do this particular task. Right. And we think, for example, for motor imagery tasks, maybe not affective uh, classification, like emotion recognition, but for motor uh, imagery tasks, it should be probably uh, more or less similar. Gotcha. Uh, would you... Would you get a, a Neuralink-like device, like a, a implanted device? I don't device? know. I have very like, um, uh, complex um, uh, feelings let's, about let's Neuralink. I <laughs> have read good and uh, negative things about yeah. Neuralink uh, and the way uh, research let, is done. Let's forget Neuralink. I mean, just yeah. a consumer oh, implantable device. Yes, I yeah. would. You I, wouldn't? Would. You I would. would. Yeah. I would. I would too. I would. I would. As soon as its uh, safety is confirmed, yeah. I will be the first person who would sign up for yeah, a chip. Cool. I don't mind that. Um, actually, um, when I started my PhD program, the first idea, because like my supervisor said, well, come up with a couple of ideas and, and come, we will discuss it. The first idea that I had, I was so naive and futuristic <laughs> thinking, was brain to brain communication. Yeah. So if I get a chip and you get a chip, yeah. then we can uh, have a telepathic <laughs> communication, that seems, right? That seems like, so, I mean, isn't that like a question of how much of your language, how much of language is just in your brain? And mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. that's, we have no idea, right? Yes. Because all we have right now is words and mm -hmm. writing stuff or like speaking stuff like this. How, how that brain activity maps to what we're communicating now, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a very, we have no idea how that works. Yes. Am I wrong? Um, so the translation of the neural activity into behavior, that's yeah, what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, so yeah. when I change something into verbal language, yeah. when I voice it, like yeah. sometimes we even notice, well, I didn't mean it this way, yeah, right? Yeah, I yeah, meant yeah, it yeah. different. It just yeah. came out wrong. Yeah. That's true. So the source of the thought could be a different thing than the representation, yeah. the behavioral representation of the thought. I'm not saying that with 
brain-to-brain uh, communication, we are going to go as far as being able to just communicate the thought as it is to another human. I don't know whether that is even theoretically possible. It'd be like a different, a different But it will be a thing. different way of communication. So imagine every time I had to text someone, I, uh, someone, I take my phone and I have to put in w- the words there. And let's imagine that I can have like a speller uh, in my brain. Like every time I think about certain letters, it would start typing them yeah. and it would it would hit the send button to yeah. be sent to another person and they would either get uh, the message uh, as an audio form or I don't know, maybe it can be um, encoded or decoded uh, by their chip as well. I think we are looking at ways of, of so making like, it possible in the future. We are not there yet at all. Because we have, we have right, right now it's like we have this one more output system that's kind of like a real bottleneck, but our brain seems quite scalable in the sense of mm. like adding new ways to get information out of it as well as maybe get into it. Which is pretty, pretty, pretty neat. Because like yeah. uh, there are times I think, man, I would love to have a prehensile tail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that'd be super. Sometimes it's like when I'm cooking, I'm like, man, a tail would be nice. Or like a third hand would be really nice. A right third now. hand uh, <laughs> is something that I also wish for. Um, actually, more than that, I would, for example, like my door to open when I want it to open yeah, when nice. my <laughs> both hands are full. So rather than getting a third hand, yeah. I want my environment to become smart to respond to my brain commands right. nice. so that that would be something really fancy which i don't think we're that far away nice and uh, okay final question let's like 100 years from now mm-hmm. like what would you like to see happen 100 years from now in mm-hmm. terms of like this top d- domain and what do you think is likely to happen what would be a cool mm-hmm. future 100 years from now for you to be in in terms of yeah. how just uh, just in terms of domain right yeah. not uh, yeah. not general humanity general, uh, general humanity <laughs> we'd, we'd be here all day talking yeah. about this. but just like just in terms of VCI, VCI domain yeah. um, I think um, a very big part of the research that is still ongoing but hasn't made um, a huge shift is neuroprosthetics okay um, so prosthetics that collect signals from your brain and react as your real human body would do um, so lots of the uh, research that we have is through um, passing of the brain information to external uh, exoskeletons or yeah. um, robotic limbs. Yeah. Uh, we do see prosthetics advancing really, I think, uh, well recently. Um, I think that linking pin needs to be uh, more so, uh, solidified, uh, where we now bring BCI classifiers as soon as they are reliable, um, to this new uh, prosthetic technology, and I feel like the, the the like the rubber hand illusion and like the ability for us to like 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 the phantom limb uh, mm. that feels like it's like a, actually a nice scalable solution. Like if you have your, your your arms missing and you mm. put a neuro prosthetic that is very responsive and like does exactly. stuff, mm. then your brain will happily be like, yeah, that's my hand now, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. and just start mapping. But then I feel like. And an, 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 another bottleneck is the sensory feedback from that hand. Is that's kind of hard. that's exactly what we in the BCI field call it the lo- closed loop uh, BCI, yeah. where you not only uh, control the, the the prosthetic or the object with your brain, but you can also gather the feedback from right. that, not visually, but also through other sensory input. Yeah. So visually, we can't see it moving, but what about the feeling, yeah. the haptic yeah. feeling of yeah. it move? Um, there was one research group in, in the U.S. They were doing it with some... Um, um, 
uh, army uh, veteran uh, where they actually closed the eyes. They, they, the veteran had some implants and they were trying to write back the information right, right, right. regarding the uh, tactile feedback into the um, into the brain. So there is a video online you can watch that the, the eyes of the veteran is closed and um, they start touching a robot yeah. that is connected um, to the uh, sensors in the brain. Um, the robot has five fingers and every time the um, the researcher touches one of those digits, um, the person is capable of saying what part. Oh it wow, was nice! Was so the, right now the read is good. The write is a bit messy reading is better better than, than writing, writing. Yeah, yes yeah, yeah. and writing can only happen if it is invasive nice 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 right yeah. so that's why the research is slower yeah i agree all right thank you that was great Budesh. Thank this you. was a very nice talk very stimulating and insightful i appreciate your time and it's, it's gonna be sad to see you go uh, leave tilburg and uh, thank you go to amsterdam mm-hmm. uh but uh you know i'm sure you'll figure a way to like have yeah the stay in touch for sure all right yeah. thanks thank Bye. you This has been a One Deeper Podcast. Thanks for joining, and I hope you learned something. Catch you again next time.